The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, new research indicates the early universe tried on a revealing halter top, but realized this showed off the muffin top shape of reality and not very advantageously. So being in time eventually settled on a black number that is much more slimming, and that's why there's night. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talked to Peter J. Wax and Aton Collin on their most excellent collaboration, Flintlock Fantasy Color of Lightning, Benjamin Franklin in Arcane America. This is the third entry in the Arcane America series, and like the other two books, including Dragon Award-winning first book in the series, Uncharted, these books can be read in any order. Each is standalone and tons of fun. Collar of Lightning features Ben Franklin's discovery of a magical connection to the key he electrified in our timeline and his coming into his own as a wizard of power, working for the best of causes. And we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. The Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award has been presented. This year's JBM goes to M.T. Wrighton for his short story, Begala Devi Objective. This is a tale that takes place in a near-future setting in Earth orbit. It's exciting and suspenseful, but also involves humanity participating in a positive future where spaceflight and colonization are underway and successful. Each year, Bain Books awards the JBM in conjunction with the National Space Society. Most years, we give out the physical award at the annual International Space Development Conference, wherever it might be held. This is always super fun for us editors to go to as well. Well, we couldn't do it this year, but we still had the award, of course. You can find M.T. Wrighton's excellent story at the Bain.com front page, and it'll be there for the following month until July 15th. And if you miss it there, you can find it in that most excellent and free ebook anthology, Free Stories 2020, which is downloadable in all formats at Bain eBooks. Begala Devi Objective by M.T. Wrighton. Read it and shift your sense of wonder and adventure into high gear. Want to welcome uh, Aton Collin and Peter J. Wax to the podcast. Hey, how you, how's it going, guys? Hi, Tony. Good. Uh, Aton is the author of the successful and award-winning Unincorporated series. The first book in the series is The Unincorporated Man, which won the Prometheus, and uh, two of the three other books in the series were nominated for that. Aton has also published a book of short stories called Grim Tales of the Brothers Colin. Um, Peter J. Wax is a cross-genre writer who has worked in various capacities across the creative fields in gaming, television, film, comics, and most recently, um, when not busy editing, he spends his time writing novels. Panelist, guest speaker, guest of honor at a lot of conventions and trade shows. Um, he can be found practicing martial arts also when he's not writing, playing chess, drinking scotch or IPA. I don't like IPAs, but... I'm glad someone does. <laughs> fighting with swords. But I'm not going to fight you over this because I have a feeling you'd win, Peter. Um, out now. I, you know, I don't practice as much as I should. Oh, okay. Well, you practice more than I do. <laughs> so. yeah, my sword fighting abilities have actually gone down quite a bit with age. It sucks how a 4% reduction in your elbow and your wrist really translates oh, really? into a huge loss of ability. Yeah. Oh, and, well, that would yeah, really suck if this were the Middle the Ages. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately, in the 21st century, you can just pull a trigger. But <laughs> anyway, um, let's now. Now, 
What's that? <laughs> Say that again. It's a debate about the Second Amendment now. No, it's not a debate about the Second Amendment. <laughs> it's a debate that Mr. Colt um, had something to say about swords. So, just an observation. I <laughs> um, um, yeah. a slight funny anecdote in that I had a friend who was really proud of his martial arts ability, and he had yeah. won all these awards, and he'd been all these things, and he was like, I can kill you from here, and I can kill you from there, you know, when you're in your early 20s and you're an idiot. And so another mm-hmm. friend of mine looked at it and he said, well, I can kill you with this finger. And he pretended like he was pulling a trigger. <laughs> kind of put that conversation quickly to bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the segue to, uh, <laughs> because if you could do it with your mind, you could do it with magic. Um, and we have a magic, we have a lot of magic in the uh, the book that's out right now, which is Collar of Lightning by Aton Collin. And Peter J. Wax, or vice versa. However, um, and this is the subtitle of this is Benjamin Franklin in Arcane America. Um, can you can I guess maybe we can talk about the origin of you you guys writing this book and writing it together, and and what what led to this, and then we can maybe start talking about the milieu and the and the and the characters and everything. Peter came to me with a brilliant idea of basically starting a world where magic came to colonial America. And America now had to deal with isolation from the rest of the world and having magic. And I pretty much instantly said... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go ahead, Aton. Finish that up. (laughs) Finish that thought. So I said at that point, if you're going to do this, you have to have Benjamin Franklin be one of your characters. Because this guy, at that point, I was just studying some Benjamin Franklin. I was doing some things with it. Nothing like I was going to actually learn and do, as it turns out. Uh, but I'm a history teacher. And, you know, Benjamin Franklin is always a fun one to talk to the students about because he's essentially the coolest damn founding father we've ever had. Hands down. <laughs> Not even close. I mean, just dumb. That's it. Uh, so I said, you have to have Benjamin Franklin because if magic came about in colonial America, he would jump on it like a hungry lemur looking at a pile of eggs. I just wouldn't even do a thought. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, so Three days later, I got a call saying, do you want to write it? <laughs> it, it, it so there's all behind the scenes <laughs> outside of a, a Stephon story. Um, it's funny because last night I was just I was cleaning up my mailbox and stuff, and I was actually looking for some of the old notes on the world and some of the the magic notes from when I was trying to come up with the magic system. And um, uh, I was I reread some of the original uh, emails <laughs> that Eric and I traded about the world. Um, so it started with 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 Eric and I, Eric Flint and I, talking about something that we could write together, a world that we could create together, and. Uh, I was actually leaning towards like uh, maybe like a comedy fantasy or something like that. He was like, well, what do you think about like historical, like uh, revolutionary or pre-revolutionary uh, fantasy? And I'm like, like, like magic. He's like, yeah, like, like high magic, like, like uh, a centered world or something. Uh, and it's like, wow, that's really fascinating. And we went back and forth and the original story I wanted to write was actually about James Oglethorpe uh, and the founding of Georgia, uh, not, uh, not Franklin. But uh, I, I called Aton uh, because uh, he, he was teaching history. He was teaching uh, constitutional uh, history and the found, uh, you know, the founding of America at the time. And so I was, I just needed somebody to talk over as I was starting to research and learn because I knew nothing about it, the time period, anything, and I needed to make myself a scholar. And so, so then, uh, as we were talking, we brought Kevin in because uh, I was working a lot with Kevin, who was mentoring me at the time. And uh, it just kind of grew into the the project that you see in front of you. And I ended up getting to write uh, Ben Franklin with Aton. Um, it, it was just, yeah, he, when, when he was like Ben Franklin, I was like, well, yeah, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's so obvious that I should have noticed it and didn't. So what is going on here? What is the sundering? What has Haley com- Haley's Comet wrought? So, so since that is the climax of the book, I don't want to go too far into it, but um, 
the, you know, the idea behind the Sundering is that, uh, that Halo's Comet carries magic, and it brings with it, every time it passes, it brings a little bit of magic to the world. Mm-hmm. And the Sundering is, you know, what happens if all of that is brought down at once. And, and uh, it, 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 it separates the area of impact with the comet from the rest of the world, and it creates a land of magic. It's, it's, uh, it turns North America uh, into something more like Avalon, you know, where you have to cross the mists to get into it. Yeah, and the I mean we've we've have two previous books in the series that where it has happened. Um, yes, but this is a, a presaging. So, what um, what's going on? What's going on in Ben Franklin's America? How we start with the kite experiment, and and he's out with William. Um, what happens with the kite and the key? Well, this is where. Franklin first gets introduced to the concept, first understands there's something called magic because he manages to save his son's life in a way that should have been physically impossible by all the laws of science. Simply shouldn't have happened. And that's Franklin's wake-up call as to there's something very odd going on. And yeah, being Benjamin um, Franklin, he doesn't leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. Does not leave it at that. The uh, I guess the, the the concept that that built the beginning of the book is that every time the comet passes, it sheds, and you know we get little pieces of scrap that that get in through the atmosphere, and these little pieces of of metal that fall from the sky occasionally are actually you know from the tail of the comet. It's it's really horrible physics, but it's it's wonderfully delightful fantasy. Um, and those 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 pieces of, of, of scrap metal, they're imbued with magic, and Franklin doesn't realize it, but that key is, one, is forged uh, from, from metal that has been smelted that included some of the magical metal from, from the comet. And so, so uh, as the electricity hits him, uh, comes down the, 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 the kite, as uh, what Aton's talking about, all of this starts to happen, he basically unlocks magic and is no clue how to use it. No clue what to do with it. Um, but he's got it. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, well, it takes time, him, he, uh, he, we have, we have a leap in the story of about 17 years, right? Um, about seven, seven, yes. Seven, 1752 to 1759. And the bulk of the novel is essentially a secret history. Uh, purpose of a secret history is, well, the difference would be, um, aliens land during the uh, John F. Kennedy administration and start uh, integrating their technology with ours. That would be an alternate history, straight out. A secret history is aliens were the ones who actually assassinated John F. Kennedy. And we're going to tell you what really happened. So the bulk of this novel is actually a secret history. So every event that takes place uh, that is public actually took place in actual history. <clears throat> every meeting, every letter, everything that goes back and forth. Um, for instance, if the Liberty Bell was unveiled at the uh, Pennsylvania Assembly on this day, then this novel, the, Pencil, the Liberty Bell, was unveiled. Now, all the stuff that goes on behind, um, the good thing about history is there's a lot of stuff that isn't talked about, so you can put a lot of secret history in there. So this is basically the secret history of how magic was infiltrating the world and how Franklin was getting more and more involved with it as time goes on. And we get all these really cool um, depictions of historical who people who are historical, right? Like um, the the folks Franklin stayed with when he went to England. The is Stevenson right, the, from the lowliest yeah. slave to the from the lowliest slave to the King of England. We've got a lot of historical figures in there. Yeah, every every single named character is a real person, and uh, we studied them and figured out, made sure they were where they were supposed to be, that they were. From the pug to uh, the the <laughs> to Peter Peter the Wild Boy, great example. Um, you know, we we found cool little nuggets from the time um, of of these characters to include, and uh, it's it's rife with it because there's you know the Royal Society of the time, there's the Royal Court. Uh, the, it was a huge time. You know, the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Assembly was 
uh, fighting uh, during the Seven Years' War against the, the idea of having to use its money to arm troops and to commission troops, and they wanted to spend money on, on treaties instead, uh, treaties to the West. And the, the, there was back and forth, and, and um, kind of that concept, along with the fact that the proprietor, the, the Penn family, um, wasn't, didn't have to pay taxes. They, they, they kept their, their own taxes, and so the colony felt that it was an unfair burden, and they actually sent Franklin over and and Franklin, who normally is you know a great statesman, a, a, a eloquent, amazingly able to talk with anyone and everyone and charm everyone, got into this well historically famous fight with Thomas Penn over the colony and over Pennsylvania um, to the you know to the point that it eventually led to the humiliation of the cockpit and uh, you know as one of the seeds like of the American Revolution. Yeah, and so so we really focused in on that that fight with. Penn and those characters, um, because it was such a natural fit with the time leading into the arrival of Halley's Comet in 1759. Yeah, the the it's really cool the um, the way that uh, in in the later stages of the books that that we get so many instances from from you know Franklin's history the um, the fact that he was so ill treated in England um, really made him. Basically, he came back and took the country away from them for, for treating him like. He was essentially a super British patriot. He loved the empire. He planned to live in London for the rest of his life. He thought of himself as an imperial, not a colonial. And then the yeah. British just treated him so badly that he was like, fine. In fact, not to do with the book, but just one of the funny stories of Benjamin Franklin, the suit he was wearing when he was in the cockpit was a suit of blue uh, velvet. And he carefully put that suit away, packed it up, put in a ton of mothballs, preserved it. He never wore it again until the signing of the peace treaty in 1783 when the British had to acknowledge the Americans were independent. That man had a well-developed sense of vengeance. I'll have to say that. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, that was, uh, to your point of how poorly the British treated him and, and to what you're saying, Aton. You know, that was one of the things that happened to Franklin was that he, you know, he actually made an argument in front of the, the magistrate, uh, and, and he, he referred to himself as an Englishman, uh, and the magistrate corrected him and actually told him, no, you are, you are not an Englishman. You're a colonial. It's different. You're, you're not a British citizen. You're a subject of the colonies. And I, I think that was an eye-opening experience from him, or for him. Well, what? Uh, all right. As to the secret history portion of this, how does the magic? What are the rules of this magic? Are there rules? It seems like it's a sympathetic kind of magic that that he's. Um, um, yeah, it absolutely is. I, I, you're asking the right person. That's the rules. Um, definitely takes place. Yes, the rules uh, of the magic really, system are. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, uh, since I've done game design before, it was really tasked to me to come up with a clean system that would be usable by multiple authors without having to go into too much depth of explanation. So basically, the way that we designed it is it's sympathetic to your own belief system. So whatever you believe in your heart of hearts, that faith is how the magic reflects itself. So, you know, for Franklin, it's a very Merlin-esque type of magic uh, where it's based on his observation of the world and his secret languages and his way of, of observing things. Um, and, and the effects that he calls forth are based on that as well. Uh, you know, with one of the characters, they believe in the old German gods, and so they actually call sheets of those gods around themselves. And... Um, Wotan, help. Uh, Wotan, aid me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and actually kind of smite as though they are that divine entity. Um, uh, with, uh, we have Shango, the, the, uh, who is similar in that, in that uh, it's, it's the, the wrapping of a divinity, but then we also have uh, a character who believes in math, and she actually calculates. Uh, she, she runs calculations in her mind and on her fingers, and she speaks because she was taught the tradition, but it's it's all about her 
manipulating through the way that she sees the world. And uh, the, the cost of the magic, because that's always the interesting thing, and it's not readily apparent, they, they kind of, Franklin's curious about it, but they don't really figure it out too hard, uh, you know, like too, too deeply. Um, well, Merlin kind of does, but the, the cost of the magic system um, is very simply a caloric burn. Uh, you, you, how much energy would it cost to do that with your muscles? And that's how many calories you have to burn to, you know, cast the spell, to use the magic. So if you do something too big, you run the risk of starving yourself out and collapsing from exhaustion because you, you just, you shell yourself out. And uh, there's going to be, it's actually uh, in Kevin's book, he, he, he has uh, a battle with, with Franklin and a dragon, and because it's so much magic that has to be used, they have this, like, massive three-table feast after the battle, and that's, like, in the opening of his book, uh, because he just has to refill all those calories, has to refill all that energy. This is, um, so, let's uh, maybe talk about the plot and the conflict before we talk more about the characters um what is what's going on here we got this guy we have we're cut between franklin in america and this guy robert overton and polly stevenson in uh at the beginning of the book at least in in england um and there's some hints that the king is involved um with with some things going on what what is it that um what's the danger here and what's the threat well, and, and what it's happens? England in, it's England in the 1700s, so you're going to have secret societies. I mean, just the good God, the English love their secret societies. Uh, not only did Franklin, so that's going to be a pretty big part of it is basically uncovering these secret societies and what they're trying to do. Yes, and the, the, the threat is, I think I can give away the bigger threat without giving away too much. Um, yeah, you know, the line that that any, I, don't, I don't want to cross that line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, the larger threat, any time you come up with a rule, a set of rules for magic, there's always somebody who figures out a way to break them. And somebody has figured out a way to break them and steal energy from other people. So you have kind of a, a mass killing to fuel a sorcerer potential that, that people are struggling against or struggling to achieve. Uh, and, and that struggle back and forth is kind of part of what folds. I don't want to say any more than that because I'm like right up against the spoiler line there. Well, we do have the key, which we know from the very beginning has been magified um, and, and that it is connected to Franklin in some way. We also have a, early on in the book, we have the, uh, the dedication of the, of the, of the bell. Um, why is this... What's going on with the spell, and why is it connected to the key, and why is it connected to Ben Franklin? Well, I think we have talk about the bell, considering it's right on the cover of the book. Yes, <laughs> it's it gonna, is. <laughs> right. It's not going to be a big secret. The bell is essentially one big mass of that star metal, or that magic metal that keeps on falling from the sky. And it's essentially one of the largest single deposits of that metal in one place. In fact, the key was actually... Uh, created from a little bit of the excess metal from the making of the bell. Yeah, yeah. the idea is that when, when the bell was smelted uh, initially over in the Whitechapel Foundry in London, um, star metal was used in, in the, the... Somehow it made its way into the foundry. And so in the batch of metal that created the Liberty Bell, that key came from the same batch, the same smelting. Um, as a little bit of a joke for an architect in, um, in Philly uh, and a friend of Franklin's who actually helped him with his electricity experiments. It, it, it all fits together really nicely. Um, so, so as a joke, the foundry sent him a key batch out of that same batch. And so, so all of that metal is connected. So what is so? Let's talk about Ben Franklin a little bit. I like the way you guys portray him, which is he's he's not like um, overwhelming genius to the point where he has no weaknesses. Um, he's he's a he's got some vanities. He's got some uh, some worries. Um, we're in his consciousness a lot. How how was that to try to write? You know, one of the great minds of of uh, 
of all time, uh, you know, as a character? Well, first of all, he was a character, both <laughs> figuratively and literally. Uh, Franklin is one of the greatest characters in human history. He's a guy that literally started off, technically he should have been pretty much almost nothing. He was the last child born in a family of like 13. His father was an immigrant from America. He was definitely what you would call at best lower, lower middle class, but really he came from a working class family. Um, he wasn't, nothing much was expected from him because, you know, by the time all the other sons were there. And yet this man literally transformed the world. He created the idea of the modern American in the truest sense that anybody could make it, anybody could go to any length or any levels as far as their abilities. And he was just so startlingly brilliant as a historical figure. I mean, we tend to think of him as, you know, that kindly face who was at the Declaration of Independence and at the Constitutional Convention, and he did that little electricity thing, and he was this big printer, that we tend to forget that he was probably the third greatest scientist produced in the 1700s. And just, just in his own right, the guy was startlingly brilliant. And he had some startling flaws. Uh, he, he wasn't the greatest family man in the world, if we're going to be very honest about it. And he did have his vanities. And as long as you went ahead and um, spoke to his vanities, as long as you catered to his vanities, he was pretty much yours. But he was also a pretty vengeful man. Um, that part we didn't quite put in there, but... The vanities were put in there, and the faults were kind of put in there. He enjoyed well, his creature. I tried to hint at the vengeance. I tried to hint at the vengeance in the chess games when he was talking about the chess games with William. Um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to, 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 to jump a little more, I actually had a process followed that came to Franklin and figuring this out um, and figuring out my side of writing him. Um, I, I, I went all in. I read, uh, I read his almanac, uh, poor Richards. I read a, a ton of his, uh, quotes. I read, you know, the, the first, I read the translation of his, um, autobiography. And then I read, uh, I taught myself how to read French, uh, at least a little bit enough. I could struggle through, uh, the autobiography as he originally wrote it, uh, kind of got into, tried to get into his head. For me, the biggest thing was figuring out like, where what he wrote didn't match how he acted, because in, in hypocrisy, we, can, we all know truths that we don't follow because, you know, it's hard to not have a beer at night. It's hard to, it, 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 you don't live as a paragon and he wasn't a paragon. So figuring out the things that he had figured out, the wisdoms that he figured out and where he didn't follow them, I felt that I could find some of his flaws and some of his, his secret little guilt. And and if you can find the little guilt, then you can find the things that make someone real, uh, the the things that start to see who they were instead of who history thought they were. Um, and so so I and, just niggled at all those little details, uh, uh, chomped on them and 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 wiggled and tried to find those little cracks. And yeah, it was. Uh, uh, an insane amount of reading, an insane amount of thinking, and trying to get myself into that headspace. It's also the headspace of the time period that he was in. Um, oh, so many details went into this book, uh, or didn't go into this book, that were just known about. Um, that could basically get you into the mindset of Franklin and his day-to-day, -day, the things that he would be worrying about, the things that he'd be dealing with. Um, one of the things that is not really talked about was the big alum scare in bread in July of 1757, which is when Franklin arrived in London, and everyone was concerned because the bakers were adulterating the bread to make it look a lot whiter. Um, and Franklin, being of the uh, being a person who was aspiring to the middle class, would have been actually looking into that. But then you got Franklin's clothing and Franklin's uh, wish to be accepted. That was a big part of his personality for the longest time. Franklin didn't assume the demeanor of, I'm just the humble, humble American until later, and he did it for very calculating reasons. Uh, when he realized that him actually being humble would be the way to go, uh, he adopted that in a heartbeat. But for the good chunk of his life, he was the exact opposite. He wanted to dress very well. He wanted to eat very well. He wanted to live very well. Um, 
And again, that could be seen, eh, that might not come through too much because Franklin seems to be living in existence many Americans would recognize today. But it would be difficult for us to realize that very few people in the world at that time lived as well as Franklin did. Yeah, yeah. And also, you got you don't you can't shy away from the slavery issue. Yeah, well, he had a slave. Yeah, he had two. Well, technically four. Who are characters in the books too? Yeah. Yeah, we tried not to shy away from that. He always felt a great guilt about not actually freeing them, only freeing them in his will. And he struggled back and forth. It wasn't until 1757 that he believed uh, uh, that slave children could actually read. Uh, 1757 or 1758? Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, right around that time period that... I think 1758. I think 1758. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would have to go... I have it in a notebook somewhere. I have hundreds of pages of notes for myself um, on him. Uh, but yeah, you know, it was, it was very uh, endemic society at the time that, that they, they believed that the, the, the children from Africa and the slaves, that they couldn't learn to be actually educated uh, and that it was pointless. And it was in that time that uh, the first school started to pop up and a friend of his showed him a school and it showed you know all all of these slave kids acting just like the the white kids and the the it was it was an eye opener for him and it was a kind of a game changing moment uh towards him becoming an abolitionist in his later life yeah. well um let's talk about some of the um the other characters those that are both arrayed against uh him and uh some allies uh what about like uh I mean, we don't want to give plot away, but we can talk about some of the, the characters. We've got ben, Benjamin Loxley and Jane Loxley, who's, who's got nefarious things going on. Um, Gaspardini, um, the, uh, the Pens. What, uh, talk about some of these characters, how you made them into magical sorts based on the, um, the historical personages, maybe. Sure. Anytime you want to kick it off or you want me to? Who do you want to start with? Oh. Uh, well, the interesting is the one character who was really not a historical character, even though various names were historically done, was uh, Mirden, um, which is one of the more interesting characters because you don't quite know, is he enemy, is he friend, uh, what is his goals, what is he trying to do, and a lot of people seem to be circling around him. In terms of opponents, obviously there's Thomas Penn, who at first seems to be the main opponent, the one that Franklin's really got to be dealing with, the one who's really pulling all the strings. Um, but is he really the main opponent? Is he really the one who's actually pushing all of these things? Well, it's, it's a pretty cool revelation when you find out <laughs> what's going on there. <laughs> I do not want to give away. I'm very no, <laughs> walking no. up to that line. I'm not going to walk yeah. over it. Yeah. But Thomas Penn makes such a delicious bad guy because honestly, he was kind of he, well, he was like that. This was a guy who was like all my privileges, and everything that was so cool about his dad seems to have been completely thrown away in the sun. It's almost like they <laughs> yeah. skipped a generation. Because I think Thomas Penn would have had so much more in common with his grandfather, the admiral, <laughs> than with his actual son. And it almost makes you wonder where the hell did Thomas Penn, where the hell did William Penn come from? Because William Penn was generous, he was open, he wanted the best for everybody, and Thomas Penn basically turned into this "I want to be an aristocrat too," and screw all these poor people, and screw, all, and it's just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, the, um, you know, I think one of the, the big things was each of these people required a deep amount of research because the magic is designed around cultural and personal beliefs. So, you know, it's, it's easy if a bunch of people are part of a congregation and believe exactly the same set of values. Um, it's really difficult when you start plucking out uh, independent people, free thinkers from the time period, uh, innovators, because every, every one of them feels something different. And, and the magic system, it's so tied to how magic represents is so tied to personality that, that we had to try our best to get to know each of these people, and sometimes off of very, very little. 
Um, you know, you, you mentioned Benjamin and Jane Moxley. So let, I'm going to go into Ben Moxley because that was just amazing. Um, you know, figuring out who he was and, and how, how he and Jane came to be. Um, so Ben Moxley was an architect, a, a very cunning artificer. And he was Franklin's friend, and he would actually uh, build a lot of the tools for, for Franklin for his experiments. And um, there's not a lot about him other than you can see a couple of the houses he designed and get uh, some of the feel for his, uh, uh, for his personality. Um, and he designed this house that has a, uh, a, a very rare feature, uh, a balcony on the second level that extends beyond the house but is part of the house. And I was looking at the stanchions on the balcony. I was looking at these, these beautiful, beautiful supports on it. And I was like, where th those don't look normal. So I started digging into the history of the house and, and I started having to go to, to various places that, that had historical records. And I started digging through receipts and in following receipts, I ended up in the shipyards and I started following ships and I discovered that he had purchased the the scroll work off of a frigate that that had been refitted to be uh from like a a, ten, a, a a 30 gun to a 50 gun frigate or something like that i don't remember now but but i'm sitting there chasing and i find this ladle this feet from from the, it you know, the it 1700s been a 30 gun frigate. 50 gun frigates are, are much closer to basically or almost a ship of a line at that point Right, right. Yeah, like I said, I don't remember the exact uh, refit, but it was the HMS Adventure, Her Majesty's ship. It, it, it was the adventure, and I'm like, oh, my God. It's like somebody wanted us to write this detail into, you know, this house has to be there, and this is – he went and he found the, the scroll work from the adventure and put it on his house. Like, okay, I'm starting to get a feel for this guy actually having a little sense of whimsy, even though he was this like really meticulous, it, it, it started to, to build itself out and, and just going through it, digging it. And, and the oddest places revealed the coolest secrets sometimes. Sorry, I geeked out over details. Yeah, yeah, was apparently so. <laughs> I had an affinity for Franklin's love of chess. I've always loved chess. I just find it to be... A fun little game. When I was teaching, I used it as a way of uh, kind of uh, dragging kids into out of their world and into. I formed some chess clubs. So the fact that Franklin was such an aficionado of the game was an easy, easy uh, write-in. He would actually use chess games to try to uh, unofficially do his diplomacy. When he was trying to prevent the American Revolution, he actually uh, played chess games with the sister of the Howe brothers who were both the admiral and the general who helped start off the uh, American Revolution on the British side. But he was actually trying to negotiate and prevent this from happening. So he went in to, uh, and so he was playing chess with the sister. I mean, well, of course, while they were playing chess, they were trying to figure out how to, you know, keep the British from starting the American Revolution. Yeah, forgive me, but that's my point of view. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was just the way that he interspersed into uh, all aspects of his existence. It was just one of those other little details. That, um, yeah. What about his relationship with his son, which is, uh, you know, it was is, oh, is quite a what a story, and you you guys develop it somewhat in uh, in Color of Lightning. Um, yeah, he loved his son, yeah. but at the end, ooh boy, <laughs> it's just, um, yeah. In the in our time, in our in our his, in our actual history, that did not end well. Um, Franklin, uh, he loved his son and he wanted his son to have the best of everything. But you could also tell even in the story that Franklin really wanted his son to follow Franklin's path and follow Franklin's direction and live out the life that Franklin had directed for him. And William was a lot like his dad. He didn't like someone telling him what to do. And it's kind of ironic because Franklin, when someone told him what to do and tried to control him, Franklin simply ran away and said, screw this. And William, yeah, there was a, ironically enough, the thing that kind of bugged Franklin the most about his son is the thing that he had the most in himself. But William is not the nicest guy uh, in this particular story. He does not come off well. 
And so, yeah, well, you know, he became a Tory. He, 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 he ended up exiled. He never slipped back in America after the revolution. But it actually started in that 1750s trip. You can actually, if you go to founders.org and you look at the Franklin Papers, um, you know, there's, there's dozens of acts of reading there because he's such a prolific corresponder. Uh, but you can see it in, in, you see the tone between William and Benjamin between 17, you know, in the like 1757 uh, through 1760, roughly, you see the tone starting to turn Pierce. Uh, you know, there's a couple times where, where William sniped it at, at Ben, basically saying, uh, of course I'll be frugal because I shouldn't follow your example. You know, like little things like that, like just sniping his dad, like, oh, you want to cut me off? You think I'm spending too much because you don't? You know, it, it, he, he, you see the tension mounting between them, and we really wanted to reflect that in the book and, and show yeah. not only where the direction of the, the relationship was going to end, but... We had to press it just a little bit because we had less time to play with. Yeah. Well, what Franklin, else? Um, um, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Franklin, actually, uh, his son became governor of New Jersey in 1762, and it's a post he pretty much held for the next 14 years, 15 years, uh, the 14 years when he was eventually arrested and exchanged back to the British. But he was a very loyal servant of the British crown. He did his darndest once he became governor. Uh, ironically, Franklin did help to get him that position, though. He pushed. Uh, the opening was there. I think the British were trying to follow the standard pattern of make sure that the children are treated well, and then you will follow through, which is a very something that how the British aristocracy actually worked. Um, and I'm sure William was kind of annoyed at his father at that point because, well, they kept their end of the deal. <laughs> Why are you not being loyal to the British system now? <laughs> sort of thing. What else can we say about uh, the book that we haven't brought up yet that might be um, without, you know, the uh, spoilers? Um, uh, the sure history of it that goes far back into the Middle Ages, uh, all these little <laughs> details, all these little things that they're desperately trying to find, and there's so rich, not rich detail in terms of um, the ancient languages that are being spoken all the things and trying to unravel all these separate mysteries and that sense of tick-tock time. Like they know time's running out. They know something's about to happen. They've got to move faster. They've got to figure this out. So many things are arrayed against them. It almost at times seems like it's paced more along the lines of like a modern spy novel where there's a nuclear bomb about to go off as much as a magical fantasy novel with with our alternate historical fantasy novel. Yes, there is definitely a ticking clock in the, in the book. Um, yeah, that, that's funny because that's, that's, that's true. You know, the inciting incident isn't covered in the book, but it actually happens in 1066 at the Battle of Hastings. Uh, Eitan and I sat down and figured out kind of the origin story for one piece of one of the side things that's impacting things. And uh, there, there may come a day where yeah. Ricky and I decide to just post up on fan story for people about the Battle of Hastings to show where that origin is. So when he's talking about some of the old languages, I actually did go study like old high English in order to be able to find the correct words and conjugations for the spells that are cast in the book. So the, the runic is correct and accurate. The Norse, the old English, the, the everything. Um, you know, I tried to treat language with a great respect <laughs> uh, uh, when I go off to do my research on it. Um, uh, and one other thing that I want actually, to add out there is that we actually uh, wrote short story. We actually wrote, oh, sorry. We actually wrote short story uh, segments that are effectively short stories um, that would explain various things of the yep. past, and then had to painfully, in some cases, uh, remove them because they just didn't fit the narrative and the pacing that we needed. Um, but there was that level of trying to figure this out and put this thing in there. Eh, maybe we should release one of those short stories along with the one that you put out there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we yeah, we have hundreds of thousands of words that have been discarded. <laughs> yeah, we do want to mention Which that is on the Bain site, yeah, on the Bain site, and uh, in in the Free Stories 2020 ebook anthology is a great um, 
it's a great companion story that's that's a lot of fun told from uh the point of view of uh, it's Franklin's daughter right the yes yes Sally Sally Sarah, Sarah yeah. yeah what's the name of that story again um I'm chasing blanking. your tail chasing your tail yeah so you can check that out and maybe there'll be more um <laughs> we'd, we'd love to see them um so what what are uh, you both working on at the moment? What's going on in, in your writing worlds? Um, I'm actually working on a uh, podcast for a short story that my brother and I wrote, and we've been actually been hired to turn it into a series of podcasts. Um, <clears throat> can't tell you which one it is, uh, as I do not have the right to actually do that, but I find I'm doing that quite a bit. Uh, and it was actually nice to take an old short story that we haven't worked on and turn it into something that might actually be heard by many people. Cool, cool. Well, podcasts are hot as hell in Hollywood right now. I know that. They are. Yeah, uh, I am just working on the next novel, chiseling away on uh, a couple different things. I have three things that are in manuscript mode right now that within probably another month here, I'll have a couple of first drafts to start deciding what I like best. Well, so, excellent. Yeah, nothing um, too exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, writing or writing. Um, and no doubt, uh, way uh, deep research. And <laughs> the various always, things. Always. Always changes with every single novel. Like the Franklin novel was so much historical detail. Uh, I worked on a novel that I finished and I have yet to publish called Matter of Perspective, where half the people of the earth shrink down to three and six inches. That research was literally getting three and six inch figures and putting them in all sorts of weird situations so you can see how that perspective would go when you're describing it. So what I love about writing is that you never know where your research is going to take you and what you're going to be doing next. You could be, you could be researching particle physics for your next novel, which is always a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, out now, booksellers everywhere is Collar of Lightning, Benjamin Franklin in Arcane America by um, Peter J. Wax and Aton Collin. Um, guys, thank you so much for uh, talking with us about Collar of Lightning today. Thank you for giving us the opportunity thank you to for having us on. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. HMS Klaus Fleming Prime Terminus Prime AJ Hyperbridge The really surprising difference is how much less, call it cosmopolitan, I guess, than Manticorans they tend to be, Sarah Kate Lessam said from the display. I have to say that's not something I would have expected, and it took me a while to figure it out, but it finally came to me. She shook her head. They are Solarians, and Solarians automatically know everything they need to know about the Neobobs inhabiting the outer dark beyond the League's borders. So why bother to look for more data? Far less open their minds to new opinions. And to be fair, even some of them who've spent their entire careers in the Navy haven't seen anywhere near as many foreign star systems as our Navy personnel, much less our merchant spaces. For that matter, we see a lot more visitors from other star systems right here in Manticore 
than more Solarians ever see. So I suppose I can understand, in a way, that they never get exposed to anyone from outside their bubble. But that doesn't make it one bit less scary. If the people in the Solarian Navy are unsophisticated enough, let's say, to never even question the nonsense the Mandarins are spewing, how's the Solarian woman in the street supposed to realize it's all lies? Now that, Commodore Sir Martin Lessam reflected, pausing the letter for just a moment to refill his coffee cup, is an excellent summation of the problem, sweetheart. He smiled. I always knew you were a sharp one, despite the fact that you decided to marry me. Too bad I don't have any better clue about the answer to your question than anyone else seems to have at the moment. He sipped coffee, gazing wistfully at his wife's frozen image. At the moment, he and Cruiser Squadron 912 were 387.7 light years and 45 days hypertravel from the Manticore system, and it was going to be a while before he got the chance to hold her again. Fortunately, letters were another matter, for the moment at least. Despite the Prime System's distance from Manticore, it was only 29 days hypertravel from Beowulf. As interstellar travel times went, that wasn't especially bad. It wasn't anything he'd call good, but he'd had to put up with far worse. Of course, that hadn't been in the middle of a war against the largest star nation in human history. That put a rather different slant on things, and had quite a lot to do with how Crew Ron 912 came to be floating in interstellar dimness just over seven light hours from the Prime System's Geo Primary. His squadron's only company was a single platform keeping station on the prime terminus of the Prima J Hyperbridge. That platform, the home of prime traffic control, was on the small side. Then again, the Prima J Bridge wasn't very impressive compared to the massive Manticoran wormhole junction and saw perhaps 5% of the junction's traffic. The prime system, however, was also only 21.5 LY and less than three days from the Ageta system and the Ageta Stein hyperbridge. That made this unprepossessing, thoroughly depressing volume of nothingness far more valuable than first impressions or simple economics might have suggested, given Leakuan 2's strategy of seizing control of as many wormholes as possible. Kruron 912's job was to see to it that the prime terminus stayed seized, particularly since Vice Admiral Correa had taken the rest of the task force off to Agueda en route to Stein. It would be inconvenient if he returned to Prime and found he had to return to Manticore through Hyper. That was a point worth keeping in mind, since eventually even the Solarian League Navy was bound to start trying to do something about Leakawan's consequences. Lessim grimaced at the thought and scolded himself for it. So far, the Sollies had stepped on their swords with almost unbelievable thoroughness, but they weren't really all idiots. It was obvious the SLN's peaceful ossification had gone deeper than anyone in ONI had been prepared to suggest in his wildest dreams, but there were plenty of perfectly good Solarian brains. The Darwinian consequences of the SLN's obsolescent weapons and less-than-ideal operational thinking were bound to push some of those good brains to the forefront far more rapidly than Lessim's more optimistic and, in his opinion, chauvinistic colleagues thought possible. They damned well ought to know better than that, but it wasn't really fair for him to fault them too severely for it. He found himself doing it too often for him to be casting any stones, witness the even of his own thoughts. The good news, as his letter from Sarah Kate reemphasized, was that those good brains had to start digging at the bottom of an awful deep hole. What had happened 39 days ago made that painfully clear. He couldn't imagine why Massimo Villaretta had been stupid enough to open a fire when Duchess Harrington had so conclusively demonstrated the hopelessness of 11th Fleet's position. But what had happened to his ships was a clear example of that Darwinian process in action. And given her position at Bassingford, Sarah Kate was better placed than most to see the human cost. He sipped more coffee and touched the play button again. Another thing that's pretty obvious, she said, is that an awful lot of them, even some of their senior officers, still outright refuse to acknowledge how outdated their hardware is. I know it's got to be hard for them, but I don't understand how they can stay in such deep denial after what happened to their fleet. Dr. Flint, 
I think I've told you about him before. He's the new head of psychology here at Bassingford. Tells me that's exactly what's happening, that they're still in the denial phase, and I suppose that makes sense. It's not exactly what I'd call a survival trait, though. She shook her head on the display, and her expression had turned grimmer. If they can't get past that pretty darn quickly, a lot more of their people are going to wind up under our care here at Bossingford, or dead. I'd like to think we'd be faster to ex- The display froze. Sarah Kate's voice sliced off mid-word by the sudden shrill, unmistakable stridency of the general quarter's alarm. Lesson was still jerking erect in his chair when a very different voice came over the speakers. Battle stations, battle stations, it barked. All hands, man battle stations. This is no drill. Battle stations, battle stations. Talk to me, Lester, Commodore Lessam said crisply two minutes later as he strode out of the lift car and onto the flag bridge of HMS Class Fleming, the Saginami C-Class flagship of both Cruiser Squadron 912 and Task Group 47.3. They came out of hyper just over three minutes ago, sir, Commander Lester Turi, Crewron 912's chief of staff replied, straightening and turning from the display over which he'd been bent. The good news is they're right on top of the outer platforms, so we had eyes on them as soon as they arrived. The bad news is there's a hell of a lot of them. Lesson made a keep-talking motion with the fingers of his right hand, and Turi gestured to the master display's rash of crimson icons. We're still putting the numbers together, sir, but it looks like at least a hundred solid warships. We've got four really big-ass impeller wedges. They're big enough to be super dreadnoughts, but they look commercial. CIC's best guess is that we're looking at somewhere around 50 battlecruisers, supported by another 40 or 50 light cruisers and destroyers, and that the big signatures are transports or fleet support vessels. Who was it back on old Earth that said quantity has a quality all its own? Lessam asked whimsically, and Tori snorted harshly. Think they're here because of us, sir? It's possible. Lessam rubbed his chin as he frowned at the master display. It would be an awful fast reaction compared to anything we've seen out of them so far, but there's been time for someone to reach Wincoat. We didn't see anyone leaving the system, but we all know how much that means. If that's what happened, though, they must have had these people sitting there ready to translate out the instant they heard about us. Commander Tory nodded, moving over to stand beside his tall, square-built Commodore, and his expression was thoughtful. At the moment, Lessam had exactly ten heavy cruisers, only four of them Saginami Seas, supported by six destroyers and HMS David K. Brown, one of the new David Taylor-class fast support vessels. One might, the commander reflected, call that a slight force imbalance. Lessam didn't know what his chief of staff was thinking at that moment, but if he had known, he wouldn't have disagreed. It was true that his Saginami Seas and HMS Ajax, and HMS Honda Tadakatsu, the pair of Roland-class destroyers attached to TG-47.3, had full loadouts of Mark 16 dual-drive missiles, but the Roland's Achilles heel was the class's limited magazine space. Each of them carried only 240 of the big, powerful missiles, less than half the number a Saginami Sea stowed, and none of the rest of his ship's internal launchers could handle the Mark 16 at all. Unfortunately, the Royal Manticoran Navy didn't have an unlimited supply of Mark 16-capable warships, and a lot of those it did have had been retained for the Grand Fleet or dispatched to Admiral Goldpeak's 10th Fleet in the Talbot sector. He did have six Saginami Bs, Shelley Ann Jensen, Margaret Mallory, William S. Patterson, Oliver Savender, Rich Wucholka, and Jennifer Woodard, all of whom were armed with the extended-range Mark 13, but that weapon's powered envelope was far shorter than the Mark 16's. It was a single-drive missile and couldn't incorporate a ballistic phase into its flight profile, and its warhead was lighter to boot. Which may be something of a moot point, he reflected, as the red icons of the Solarian Task Force began accelerating towards the wormhole at a sedate 375G. Battles outside the hyperlimit of a star system were virtually unheard of for several very good reasons. The most salient was that there was seldom anything outside the hyperlimit worth fighting for. Wormholes like the one at TG-47.3's back were the primary exception to that rule, and so was the occasional valuable resource or a bit of system infrastructure, like a particularly rich asteroid belt, 
which lay closer to the primary but still beyond its hyperlimit. But there was another excellent reason battles were seldom fought outside hyperlimits. Any starship outside a limit could translate into hyper any time it chose to, and because no one ever willingly fought a battle he didn't expect to win, the weaker side in any confrontation outside a hyperlimit always chose to translate into hyper before the stronger side could engage it. Unless there was some reason it couldn't, that was. That was the true reason for the massive fortifications covering the Manticoran wormhole junction. They were designed to annihilate anyone foolish enough to attempt an attack through one of the junction's secondary termini, of course. But in addition, they were intended to provide sufficient concentrated combat power to stand up against almost any conceivable attack through hyperspace. None of those fortifications were present on the prime terminus, however. Prime's five billion citizens had never found it necessary to build or maintain deep space forts or anything resembling an actual navy. Although the Prime system was nominally independent, it was closely affiliated with the Solarian League, which meant it could rely upon the largest navy in the galaxy for its defense and required only a handful of lightly armed units to police the system's internal volume. And since everyone knew the Prime Terminus was under League protection, there'd never been a need to fortify it. Anyone stupid enough to seize it would soon have found the SLN knocking on his home star system's front door. Ajay, at the far end of the Terminus, was not closely affiliated with the League. In fact, Ajay didn't much care for the League. Although it maintained a civil relationship with Old Chicago, it had been an independent star nation for the better part of 350 T years. It had, in fact, been settled by colonists from other Verge systems who hadn't cared for the way the League's foreign policy was evolving. And their descendants had a not unreasonable suspicion that the Office of Frontier Security would really have liked control of the Ajay Terminus. As a counterweight to those OFS ambitions, the system had cultivated cordial relations and a long-standing robust trade relationship with both the Star Kingdom of Manticore and Beowulf. Despite that, System President Adelaide Tyson had protested in vociferous terms when Task Force 47 arrived on her doorstep and announced it was taking possession of her star system's greatest natural resource as part of Laocoon II. Lessam was pretty sure most of her protests had been in the nature of covering her star nation's posterior if things went badly for the Grand Alliance. They put her officially on record as strongly opposed to the Star Empire's patently illegal seizure of every warp terminus in sight. Hopefully, that would be sufficient to protect Ajay from the League's ire in the event of an eventual Solarian triumph. For that matter, win or lose, the League would still be there the day after the peace treaty was finally signed. Ajay would still have to live with it, and Solly's had long memories. Letting word get back to old Chicago that she'd told the RMN she was delighted to see it in her star system was likely to put a certain strain on that future relationship. Under the circumstances, Commodore Lessam found it difficult to fault President Tyson, especially since, however strongly she might have protested, she and her modest Ajay system navy had stayed out of Task Force 47's way, and the Ajay Astro Control Services had cooperated smoothly although only after protesting stringently, with the foreign navy which had illegally seized control of its wormhole. System Director Gregor Cho had reacted rather differently here in Prime, however. He'd protested even more strongly than Tyson, and he'd ordered his Terminus Traffic Control Command to refuse any cooperation with the invaders. Vice Admiral Correa had expected that and brought along his own specialists, who now provided a skeleton crew for the Prime Traffic Control Platform after the Prime-E's crews had been evicted from it. The Vice Admiral had also taken it as a given that Cho would find a way to send word to the League as soon as possible, but neither he nor Lessam had anticipated this prompter response, which brought Lessam back to the unpalatable odds headed his way. Should we call Captain Rice forward, sir? Commander Thomas Wozniak, his operations officer, asked quietly. No. Lessam shook his head. Captain Jessica Rice commanded Kruron 912 Second Division. The Saganami sees HMS Peregrine S. Fay and HMS Lisa Holtz, covering the Ajay Terminus and the rest of TG 47.3's back. 
She wouldn't add that much to our firepower, the Commodore continued. And we may need them and Echidna right where they are. He rubbed his chin a moment longer, then inhaled sharply and turned from the display. George, he said. Yes, sir, Lieutenant George Gordon, his comm officer, replied. First, contact Commander Ormot. I want Sopo to stand by to transit the terminus with a complete tactical upload for Captain Rice on my command. The rest of his division is to lift our people off the traffic control platform and evacuate them to a J immediately. Yes, sir. Tori made a sound of sour amusement, and Lessam cocked an eyebrow at him. The commander shrugged. Omot isn't going to like that, sir, he said. Maybe not, but I doubt it'll surprise him, Lessam replied, and Tori nodded. That was another entry in the complete serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks for editing help from Bain intern Christopher Labaza. And thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a load of magical catnip that not only makes cats go nutso, but also uplifts them to genius level and provides them with thumbs. Fortunately, they can still be controlled with a laser pointer, so humanity and couch ends are not entirely doomed. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to Peter J. Wax and Aton Collin, authors of Collar of Lightning, Benjamin Franklin, and Arcane America. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>